don't convince yourself and other people that you can do everything well. Understand that they're going to hire you, the magazine or client, because you offer a skill set that nobody else does. And the reality is that if you're ever hired just because you have a camera and you can do it, oh man, that's like maybe, maybe one of the most frustrating things because that means I don't care that you're creative. That means they aren't buying into your creative process. They're just buying into the fact that you know how to operate in a camera. I want to be sought after because I bring something special to the table or I hope that nobody else does. I think the more we do that, you realize that you will find success in your career because you'll be sought out. All right, guys, this one's a little different. I originally had Valentina V, who's an incredible storyteller, teacher, and educator, lined up for today's show. Well, thanks, Dave. Here we are with Dave, host of Indie Mogul and this podcast that you're listening to right now. But unfortunately, there was a major audio problem with my side of the audio. Take a listen. All right, so here we are today with Valentina V, host of the 4-Minute Film School for the Aperture YouTube channel, as well as Adobe Master Trainer, freelance DP, editor, and director. So for the last several hours, I've been running a ton of de-reverb and de-echo effects in Adobe Audacity. I've been using plugins from Isotope RX, which is kind of like one of the higher-end audio plugins for video creators. I also looked into other demo programs and plugins. I literally did everything I possibly could, and these were my results. All right, so here we are today with Valentino V, freelance DP, editor, and director. To be honest, I didn't know what to do. So I actually applied a telephone filter, and I felt like that made it sound a little bit better. And then I realized that Valentina's audio sounded like really crisp, and I was just like somebody on a phone. All right, so here we are today with Valentina V, host of the 4-Minute Film School for the, Aperture, for the Aperture YouTube channel. So I decided after this ridiculous trial and error with echo effects and telephone effects, which just made it sound worse and weird and non-professional in all ways, I'm deciding to can this interview and hopefully reschedule an interview with Valentina again in the future. And I'm very grateful for her time. If she's listening to this, thank you, Valentina, so much. We must re-record this podcast. We'll make it even more unique and different and better than the first one, I promise. So make sure to stay tuned for that. And I went back into the archive of the Golden Hour show and found an episode that a lot of the newer listeners of the show may not have ever listened to. It's with world-renowned photographer Chris Burkard. I was lucky enough to have an interview with him right at the beginning of this podcast, and he's one of those photographers that will probably go down in history as one of the greats. He's worked for companies such as National Geographic, he's done stuff for Justin Bieber, he has over 3 million followers on Instagram, and a full-time production company. He's also worked with Sony, in fact recently he did a whole promo for the new A7S III, and of course he's a Polar Pro ambassador using our incredible filters on all of his cameras and lenses. Even though this podcast was recorded about two years ago, I still think it's extremely relevant for right now. So instead of listening to the crappy audio that I recorded with Valentina V, which of course we will re-record and do later, I'm so sorry Valentina, have a listen to one of my favorite interviews on this show with world-renowned photographer Chris Burkard. All right, so we're, we're in the studio here. Yeah. Tell me about are. the process of building this place out. It's incredible. I just Thank you. I, I appreciate you uh, saying that because it was definitely like a – it was definitely a very uh, 
arduous process to kind of like mentally more sort of like take an empty space an empty canvas and all of a sudden like be like oh we're gonna add these little building blocks here and i mean when when we came in here this was a crossfit gym it was a winery it was an auto shop you can still see there's like the jacks in the floor and so when i came in it was like it had just been a crossfit gym and it was just hollowed out there was weights everywhere and i was like uh like computers over there and my office here you know and so we kind of slowly but surely started to make walls and the climbing wall went in and the kitchen and then the offices and my my office and then this little um kind of recording studio we're in this little meeting room and it was cool to kind of take shape but i've used a lot of shipping containers i love the idea of having something that's like you can cut up and make your own and and sort of just kind of finagle however you want and and that was really fun for me. It was kind of like Legos. I don't know if you played yeah, with Legos as a kid, course. but I was very. This is very Lego for me. Um, and we're actually expanding. We're going to be putting another shipping container on the side to get the op, to get the meat, like the sort of people's little you know cubicle zone into the shipping container to separate oh, okay. things a little bit, making more of like a little kind of nook for books and reading, and just making it a little more communal so that I can have a little more open space to do workshops and events inside the office. Yeah. So and keep all the office stuff. Yeah, out. I just like want to give some people some privacy. Like we are a photo editor and stuff when they're editing, you know, 20,000 photos for a job. I need to give them a little privacy and I want to build a sound booth, like a proper one. So that when I want to do recordings or a podcast yeah. or something like that, I've got a little zone for that. And yeah. the coolest thing about the office though is we do big events here. So we, we do like, you know, 300 person plus events out, outside and we that's show fun. films. And that to me is the funnest thing for sure. Oh, that's a blast. Yeah, it's rad. Why did you choose this location? Good question. You know, I've lived here my whole life. So that, you know, the fact that I've lived, you know, three miles from here is great. But I've owned different buildings within town here. This We're in nice. an area called the Five Cities. And basically, mm-hmm. if you blink, you'll miss one of them. They're super small. But I've owned businesses like an office in Pismo and then Grover Beach. And they were always these random places. And so eventually I had a gallery in Avila Beach, which is kind of like the wine bar, sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, cool little beach town. And I had, a, I had a gallery there and it was great, but I could never be there. And so that was really frustrating to all of a sudden be like, well, I, I want to be able to be there when people come by and want to say hi. And yada, yada, yada. My office was like downtown somewhere random. Yeah. So I was looking for a space that I could buy that I could have my gallery and my office together. And what I realized was like, I, I wanted the gallery in this killer walkable location, but it was kind of an eye opener for me to realize that, well, that's great. People who were coming there weren't coming there for me. They were just coming there for like cheesy Pismo beach art, you know, like, <laughs> do you have photos of the pier? I'm like, nah, I got photos of Iceland, you know? Yeah. Um, so what I realized is that by having it here, we're kind of off the grid. We're a half mile from the beach, really favorable yeah. location, but we're definitely like not on a main strip. You're not going to find us like shopping, you know, you, you, people have to seek us out. And so because people have to seek you out, they're often more stoked to be here. They're excited. They, they, you know, want to say what's yeah. up. And I, I appreciate that. And so I feel like it's benefited everything. And also too, I don't want to be bothered nonstop, you know, but I love it when people come by, like, it's really special to me. So, so tell me you've, we all kind of know about your, your main Instagram page, Chris Brigard. Yeah. But you've got a great little personal account. Tell me about that. It's called Bert. What is it? Berknar? Yeah. Berknar. Is that how you say yeah. it? Yeah. Berknar. So why did you start <laughs> that account? That's a great question. Um, you know, to be honest, I think life is just too full and exciting and fun to be limited to one channel yeah. of of communicating and communication. I, I guess I've always felt like we could talk about this later, but you know, social media for me has always been a storytelling medium. That's it, mm. hands down. I didn't, you know, get an Instagram account because I thought it'd be a great great way to make money. I got an Instagram account because I was shooting editorial pieces for magazines for six seven years and yeah. felt like there were 
parts of those stories getting, you know, stuck in a Russian jail cell or, mm. or, you know, having all my camera gear flooded on a boat by a drunk captain, just things like that, that weren't making it into the magazine. So I wanted a way <laughs> yeah. or a place to, to tell those stories. I use Blogspot, I use Tumblr, I use Facebook, and then I use Instagram. But ultimately what ended up happening was, you know, people's content for appetite is, is just only growing. I kind of realized that I'm sure as you have, like mm. at first I was like, oh, if you post more than once a day, people are going to be bummed. And and I realized like, I don't really care, but I do want to in some way, keep things separate to realize that you can go to one place to feel the kind of deeper, intimate stories and thoughts and, and the, this and that. And then one place for more of the silly, random, just crap that basically yeah. you experience on the road. And to be honest, like I work with some amazing people, some great people in this office here, some great people out on the road. And there's always these funny, random moments. That I don't want to be like, Oh, well, this isn't the place for that. So I made something that was meant to be personal. Yeah. That turned out to not be personal. The images don't have to be. No, no, not at all. And and I think it's not really in in no way is it like one's more authentic than the other at all. It's just one's different. And one is a little bit more like the behind the scenes, you know, of like where I am currently, what we're up to, what jobs we're doing. Because I'm a I'm a working commercial photographer. And this is part of that. that makes me think of something really interesting that i want to ask you you said one isn't more authentic than the other and i think um we've interviewed a couple other photographers who've actually referenced you who are instagrammers uh who are don't don't call don't call them instagrammers that's like that's like kicking dirt in their face or something like that (laughs) so they put in their bio (laughs) oh god (laughs) come Uh, on people yeah so so with that like what does that mean because i can guarantee you there are people who are doing travel photography yeah that is not authentic. Um, so how is you, it authentic to you and not somebody else? That's a great question. Um, the the reality, I guess, to to answer that question, you first need to start with a different question, which is what is a photographer and what is an influencer and what is a model? Okay, yeah. <laughs> because because these three terms tend to get intermixed very casually, and I think yeah. the one thing to consider is like if you're a photographer, most of the work you're doing is not you're not being required to share it or promote it mm. or paid to. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you're, like I could go shoot for somebody. You're never going to hear about it. You're never going to see it. I'm, I'm just being hired as a photographer. If you're an influencer, I, I think I would venture to say, you know, humbly, okay, that you're most of the work you're doing, you're being hired to promote that work, mm. right? Which doesn't make you any less or any better. It's just that that's probably majority of your work is using your sphere of influence to promote said brand um, or said whatever. Sure. If you're a model, you're in front of the camera yeah. and that's all there really is to it. Like if the majority of what you're sharing or shooting is you in front of the camera, then you're a model uh-huh. and that's, that's fine. Yeah. None of those things are better or worse at all because they can all be truly authentic and truly incredible and, and very much inspire the world to be a better place for sure. If that's your mission statement. Okay. Yeah. I think that when it comes to authenticism, the reality is like you and I could go. And this is the thing. People always have this concept that oh, being authentic means that you're going to find a more unique perspective or you're going to work hard or you're going to do that. That's bullshit. Like you and I could stand at the same exact spot on the Grand Canyon, take the same exact photo. Yours could be more technically sound. It probably will be because I'm a terrible technical photographer. <laughs> I totally like I, I'm the guy who's like holding my like, you know, polarizing filter, like in front uh-huh. of my camera, or my graduated thing. I don't have all the stuff. I, I, my settings are off. But the reality is when it comes time to sharing it, if I'm more willing to intimately describe my experience and give a piece of myself in that moment mm-hmm. and tell people what it felt like to be there, the visceral experience, mm-hmm. I think that that becomes more authentic. And you were just to say, 
the mountains are calling and I must go. (laughs) Okay. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It's like, it's like, at what point does the authenticism fall off is I had a real experience. Mm. I I went to the grand Canyon. I might've stood on the most cliche viewpoint of anybody that doesn't make it less authentic. Authentic Mm. is just means that it was honest to your experience. And so part of that honesty is what I share. And part of what you share is what you write. Right. And so I would say that I would venture to say that with any medium, there are elements like it's not just the visual element. It's also, you know, what you're expressing yourself. Sometimes it's spoken word. If I'm going out and doing a presentation, I try to share that experience as intimately as I can. It's this, it's a extension of what I might write in a caption. It's an, and a caption is a shortened version of what I might write in a book. You're going to get the same real version of myself explaining why I did the things I did, the failures I had, regardless of where you look. And I think that's what makes us relatable as human beings. Wow. Maybe. I mean, don't say, wow, it's not, it's not that impressive. I'm just just trying to be honest, you know, I would have said, uh, it looks good. Well, that works too, you know, and there's no judgment there. (laughs) Honestly. Um, so you're a, a father, right? I think so. Yeah. I believe those are my children. Um, yeah, they bear my name and they look like (laughs) how many kids do you have? I have two boys, Forrest and Jeremiah. I've got a one-year-old boy and my wife's pregnant. Nice. Nice. So, Almost pregnant. Does that mean you're like... She is pregnant. Oh, okay. I didn't know. You're like... <laughs> that you're is like, how it happened. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, well, you said almost is... pregnant. I was kind of like, are you like... Did I say almost pregnant? Yeah, you were kind of like... I didn't I know think if this I was like sort of a... almost another kid. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I'm proud. That's awesome. Tell your yeah, wife dude. congrats and that's huge. Yeah. So we're real excited about that. But as life is moving forward, I'm being a dad, husband, and working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having Everything. A, having a lot of struggle blending all that and balancing that. Uh, the older my kid gets, the more I want to spend time with him. He already hates you, huh? Like Uh, he's only one and a half, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, man, no, dude, the struggle is real. Like like, this is the, yeah, that beautiful child. It's like, screw everything else, man. Dude, hundred percent. This is the funniest thing is I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, you're creative. You're successful. That's great. Okay. Now have a kid. Now tell me what it's like. Yeah. Like, because the reality is like. I think that there's, there's only two ways you can look at life. It's life before children, life after children and life after children is really like everything that you've learned prior to having kids. Now you have to like become absolute samurai Zen master and apply afterwards because it takes discipline. Like you want to, you know, climb as much as you surf as much as you used to like go out and try. You have to be so disciplined to that thing. You kind of have to like cut out all the other bull crap in your life to, because all the other time is occupied by those people you know or you become a terrible person terrible father i guess um and i'm i would be the first one to say like that was a real struggle for me very real like you mentioned it too like but balancing that time i've not been good at it there's times where i've been better i'm trying to get better at it but Mm. my job our job kind of requires some element of selfishness to go out on the road and take a lot of time and you can't force that time you can't force being creative like if you're like Hey, I'm going to go have to have to go out and work and half the time is going to have to be me just getting myself into the right mindset. And some of me getting into the right mindset might mean I need to go exercise or, or do this and that, or kind of like have some time to meditate. You know what I mean? Like it's hard for people to be like, Oh, you can't just go there and start performing right away. It's, it's, it feels selfish to me. Like when I have to go out sometimes and and create something, because it's not an easy process. You're right. I haven't thought about that before. How like, it's not a really a nine to five kind of thing. No, where it, you can just say not at all. Like my wife will sometimes be like, you know, at six o'clock, I want you home. And yeah. I do try my best to do that. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it turns into eight o'clock at night, unfortunately. Well, well think about this. It's like, <laughs> you know, sometimes if say you're a photojournalist or, or your job is to like work on a subject and do a, a you know, photo essay on somebody like 
a big portion of, of creating beautiful work is the time you spend with that person. Mm-hmm. So like if that requires you to stay out late and do this and that and go, you know, go here and go there and kind of like infiltrate into that person's mm-hmm. life, that's a part of it. That's, that's a direct reflection of how good the work is going to be. Yeah. And this, I would honestly say in some ways, the same with landscapes, like the landscape that you love and want to go shoot that the more time you spend outside of that assignment, the, the greater appreciation you're going to have for it. And Absolutely. I think that the photographs are a direct reflection of that time you're willing to commit. And it's, mm-hmm. it is, it is hard though. When you're dealing with somebody who's mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, cool. Okay. Can you be home at six? Cause I got to go here. You're like, uh, you know, I, yeah. I right. let, I how let, long, how long yeah. is that going to take? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite. How, yeah. long, how long is that edit going to take? I, know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Do you ever step away from the creative mindset and kind of like go and meditate, get away? You mentioned you exercise sometimes. Are there things in your life that you do that are not related to photography that help you with oh, your creative process? Oh, great question. hundred percent. I mean, the reality is like, I actually, I use the camera less now more than ever. Like I shoot, I don't shoot a lot to mm. be honest at all. I, and I, I think that, you know, some people are like, Oh my God, you don't shoot at all. Like I know I, I shoot, but I just, I shoot when I'm inspired to shoot and that happens to be less. And the reality is that I'm not uninspired. I'm just finding fulfillment in other things. And I'm saying this slowly because I want everybody to hear this is like, for me, I used to flip through the pages of magazines and just, just look at stuff that was in my, my wheelhouse, you know, Mm -hmm. like travel. And and now it's like, I want to look at, I want to like listen to amazing music and I want to look at interesting architecture and I want to learn about typography. And I feel like I'm becoming more of a student of everything Mm -hmm. that makes me intrigued and and see the world in a different way. And that kind of comes back to photography. Now, one thing I always notice about photographers when I'm reviewing portfolios, especially is I'll look at a, I'll look through a portfolio and I'll get to an image and I'll be like, that's really special. I'm like, how many frames of this did you shoot? And they're like, Oh, oh, one. And I'm like, wait, what? Especially when it's a scene that like, you know, they could shoot more. It's not like a Mm -hmm. fleeting moment. And And the reality is what I've realized that, and what I try to explain to them is like, I don't, I shoot less, but when I find something really special, I shoot the crap at it. I mean, I shoot it so much till there's nothing left, right? The, the reality is I've just been able to learn how to hone in on those more mm-hmm. um, special or iconic moments. So although I have less images overall, um, it's really more a matter of like, I'm, I'm honing it in to just the most important ones, right? Different scenes. Yeah. Well, it's, or it's like, you know, I'm going to Iceland to shoot under the Northern lights and I've kind of preconceived this idea. And now it's all about the execution. It's not like I'm just waiting here for something cool to happen. And yep. I always hate that thought process of like, Oh, you know, um, you know, so much of great photography is just luck. Like, no, that's bull crap. Like yeah. if you have a camera, you've mm-hmm. diminished some of the luck you're prepared. If you charge the batteries in that camera, even better. Hey, if you threw a memory card in there, great. Like you're, you're halfway there for me. It's more about these moments that are fleeting. Like again, like shooting the super moon or shooting the eclipse or whatever it is. They're fleeting. They're happening on this kind of timeline that's moving. Mm -hmm. And if I can meet that moment 50, 50, then I know that my success ratio is way higher. And that's what I try to do through research, through preparedness, through this and that. I don't even know how I got on this tangent, but I did. So I'm sorry, but that's just kind of my, my thought when it comes to that. So cool. Yeah. I'm a, uh, I'm a gearhead. I review gear for a living. Oh, sick. Sony, Canon, Nikon. Just, I'm unbiased to all Great. manufacturers. I know you're a Sony shooter. Yeah, Can but we to, talk tech. I would love to. I mean, I mean, full disclosure. Yeah, I'm a Sony artisan. Um, I've been a Sony artisan for about two and a half years now. 
I've used Sony equipment for about eight years. Okay. And when I say that, what that I back mean... back when the first A7 any X7? Wow. I was shooting before... Like, here's the deal. I shot Canon. Yep. I shot Nikon. When I moved from Canon to Nikon, it felt like I was moving from a, a Mac to a, from a PC to a Macintosh. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. It felt like Android to an iPhone. I yeah. was like, uh, what have I been missing out on? When was that switch? When I moved... Uh, like this was like D- back in 2000, D2. maybe 11, something like that. Like D7... Uh, what was it? D seven fifty. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. D seven hundred. Okay, D seven hundred with a battery grip, right? So you went from a five D to that. Uh, or a 1D? I, don't even, I think I was. I don't even think. I, yeah, like a like a one D one D something like okay, that. Cool. Um, good. Yeah, you you have good memory. Um, so <laughs> I moved to Nikon. I was like, Nikon's so much better. And then all of a sudden, what happened was Sony started coming out with these mirrorless cameras, mm-hmm. and um, I was like, huh, interesting, like mirrorless like they're smaller they're fast they focus quick and they're aps-c and i was and the, i was the EVF suck and i was back yeah then. <laughs> back then the evf did suck because i put it up to my eye and i was like oh god what am i it's like <laughs> i was like is this my sight it's terrible um and they know this and i've, I've shared this story a lot but the reality was i was doing trips where i was like on a snowmobile for like you know three four hours and i needed to shoot and i couldn't put the eye up to the viewfinder bouncing around yeah i wanted to be able to have a quick like point and shoot camera i could look at the back of the screen shoot a photo and move on yeah anyway um what ended up happening was i went on these trips where i had like half nikon half sony setup i mean totally like mixing and matching right it was a nightmare (laughs) i ended up shooting my (laughs) sony most the time because it was so easy to use Mm. And I think here's the biggest thing people don't understand. And now, I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you, you can shoot an amazing photo with an iPhone. doesn't matter what camera you're using. I don't yeah. care. It's composition is king always. But when it comes to kind of capturing those fleeting moments, the ones that are happening fairly quickly, yeah, I'm the guy who just pull out my camera, scroll the dial until the exposure looks okay, take a picture and move on. Mm-hmm. I was never like, oh, the exposure is going to be perfect. I didn't care. Sometimes I'd miss it. But yep. when those moments are happening that fast, I'm not going to pull the camera up to my eye, try to scroll the exposure, shoot a photo, chimp, shoot again. I never chimp because mm-hmm. I know on the screen what I'm looking at is the exposure that I'm working with, right? So mirrorless blew my mind. And then when I sent the files to the magazine, they were like, what are these? I was like, oh God, oh no. Like my editor like didn't know what Sony files are, like the oh, ARWs. Yeah. They'd never seen them before. And I was like, uh, I'm shooting with this new system. I'm sorry. Like, does this work? And, and, uh, and they were like, they're fine. They're fine. And so anyway, they started to work with them and they were like, these files are incredible. What magazine was that? Surfer magazine. I was on staff for like six years. Yeah. Um, and then come up a couple other magazines prior to that, but even like while you're working with them. Yeah. Yeah. But even like the clients, Patagonia, like they were like, what, what files are these? And I told them, and eventually they were like, these files have so much dynamic range. Oh yeah. They were like blown away because I was shooting in the Arctic, right? You're, you're dealing with, you know, sometimes it's like dark skies, big rock formations, tiny bit of light over here. And it's, you know, it's really dynamic. Yeah. And so being able to have these files that had a huge manipulation platform was like incredible. And I could tell you story after story of like, I was shooting on a job with a phase one and a Sony NEX at the same time. And they actually didn't oh, wow. know which files were which, and they liked the NEX ones more Oh wow! because of the dynamic range. Right. So it's, it was kind of crazy over time to just realize how powerful the system was. And when the, the a, R, the R, yeah, the R came out the a seven. I mean, and now talking about the R three, like, dude, I mm-hmm. can't even tell you, like, I have no, nothing else to ask for in mm-hmm. a camera. Like you this is a nine. Um, the a nine, to be honest, like when do I need 20 frames a second? Like yeah, yeah. ever. I mean, unless I was shooting like sequences of like basketball or something mm. crazy, that's a great camera. We use it. I own it. I use it rarely, yeah. but to me, the a seven S two or the R 
or the S? The A7S2 for low light <laughs> and the R3. So many lights. Those are my two go-tos. Yeah. I can't wait for them to release the I know, S3. A7S3, oh my gosh. Because the low light camera, I mean, has truly been a huge, I mean, that's how I filmed Under Arctic Sky. That's how I've shot a lot of my like best like astro and everything work. But to be just to kind what, of. What ISO do you shoot on on those? Oh, it depends. I mean, we shot Have that. Have you gone up past 10,000? Are you kidding me? We shot that film on like ISO 40,000. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I shot it. I shot the X Games award winning photo on ISO twenty four thousand. No way. I mean, so much of that comes down to the lens, yeah, and the post processing. But again, like those cameras, I feel like that the R three especially never been done before. Well, I mean, so, pe- people have done stuff. Totally. I mean, I don't think it's like we, we've done anything amazing. It was just to us, it was so cool to show that in real time in real life you know that film but i guess i've just been so impressed by the mirrorless system i would just advise everybody to try it it takes a little getting used to as you said the viewfinders have come a long way but i'm way better i've been so impressed and you review tons of cameras and i'm sure have you tried the 6400 yet um i have yeah just just this briefly but i love the The 6500 is amazing uh, right we could talk forever on cameras i won't i love that you're a gearhead because i I definitely like I've, i've tried to kind of diminish that part of myself well, the because problem, it's such a the problem i get so people, frothy people ask you all the time what camera you shoot on yeah oh and, it's the and number one here's question. the problem that happens is like they see an image what a great camera you have yeah that's like people's first reaction i can't blame them because and it's kind of like the biggest insult <laughs> it is but you can't blame them because they don't really know any better right like they don't understand Wait. what composition yeah. color lensing totally. uh, and then even like the other thing that I um, that I hate is like, oh, it's photoshopped. It's like, well, yeah, I boosted the sat a little bit, but like, it's the people's people's when people say it's it's photoshopped. My I because I I've never ever shared or posted anything that was a composite mm-hmm. or an image stack yep. or anything. I don't do that ever. Mm-hmm. Like I I just it you not follow the it, National Geographic kind of guidelines, right? Well, it's just not that it's not not that it's not a great thing. I just it's just not my style. I I, yeah. I prefer trying to create in camera. But when people say that, I usually just say you you really need to get out and see the world <laughs> a little more because because <laughs> uh, I feel like that means you just you you don't have a real bearing on what's out there. Yeah. Why do you think people react that way? Because they don't want to believe well, it. Well, I don't know. You know, to be honest, I actually think it's just a byproduct of the fact that there's so much work out there that isn't real. Yeah. That kind of sucks for people who try to be really honest with their imagery. Yeah. Um, that I see stuff and I get duped all the time. I'm like, that's amazing. I'm like, oh, it's fake. I'm like, oh, cool. Bummer. Well, you know, I'm just, it still looks I'm, cool. <laughs> I'm, gull- I'm gullible, but you know, it, it kills it for me. Like I, I really cherish work that is raw and real. And mm-hmm. I, one of the things I love when I teach workshops is to edit my most iconic images because I show people like, this is how little this is edited. And usually when people see the raws, they're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, you mean you didn't add that bird in there? You mean that volcano's not like that? Was that sharp? And I was like, you know, it's just. It people, comes back to the shooting yeah. a lot in those moments True. too. Well, and, and as you know, I'm sure more than most, like it's, we have Ferraris. We run them like Volkswagens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you have eight cylinders, but you're running on two. Most people use their cameras to the nth capacity. And when you start mm-hmm. to understand just how much you can get out of your camera, Mm-hmm. then the editing process becomes a hand in hand process where like I'm shooting really flat so that I can bring everything back, all the highlights, all the details and oh, I can yeah. maximize. So yeah, that's fun. That's the nerdy stuff that I yeah, I'm a full nerd. Sorry. I, it, sorry for cutting you off. Are you a Mac guy? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am just cause the ecosystem is easier for, I think using Lightroom and editing and everything. Yeah. So it syncs up a little better. Yeah. I noticed all you guys out there on uh, iMacs and yeah. MacBooks and yeah. stuff. Yeah. We're sorry. We, we believe the hype, I guess. You oh know. yeah. Same, we're, same. <laughs> iPhone too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good old 
10x or whatever it is 10 yeah, something 10s max yeah. multiplied by three i don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> um so i've heard that you've mentioned i've heard you mention that you have a hard time saying no to stuff uh yeah i, I have a I, problem I, with that too yeah tell, tell me tell me about that well i think it's just jobs like i mean i'll just put it simply like when you grew up in a you know, low-income house and you basically have like, you know, you're, you're doing anything you can for work and you watch your parents do the same. Um, and you grow up like that. You, when you give, when you're given opportunities, the first thing you're thinking of is like, Oh, I'm going to take every opportunity. Yeah. So nobody ever teaches you how to say no. That's not something that you're ingrained with. You're ingrained learning to say yes, fit it in, do as much work as you can. And I just, that's how I grew up. Like I was mowing lawns and working at an auto shop and working, you know, had multiple jobs and was always hustling. And the reality is when you all of a sudden get really busy and and you do have the opportunity to to turn down work, you don't want to Mm. because you're like, oh, well, will they ever hire me again? Oh, well, will that client be bombed? Oh, well, you know, people forget about, you know, it's like, and I've had to realize like, no, you have to learn to say no. Mm-hmm. By making yourself less available, you, in fact, in, a lot of times increase your value. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there's time that needs to be set aside for the things that you enjoy most. Not just talking about like personal activity. I'm talking about like work. Like mm-hmm. it's okay to turn down a big job to take a little job if you enjoy it more. Yeah. You know, for sure. I'd much it's, rather make less money and do what I love. Right. But dude, I mean, how hard is that to like tell the, 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 the you know, yeah. The photographer that's just starting out, really trying to figure yeah. it out. Like that's the hardest piece of advice I've ever had. It really had is. Yeah. I've been telling people, cause I started YouTube about a year and a half ago and nice. I was just freelance video guy and barely making enough. And now like we're able to survive and we're making good money. And, but the thing was, is like, there was about a year of hustle where we were on a tight, tight, tight budget. And I was saying no to other stuff because... I just want to focus on the YouTube thing. Right, right, right. So, like, there might be a period of time for people where you're maybe living oh, kind of broke. T- totally. Or, I mean, and this is the other part of that conversation because I want people to understand that absolutely I would have shot anything that paid a dollar. Yeah. Like, and when I started out, this is not the thing that you do when you're like needing True. to like yeah. put a roof over your head. Already. Yeah, this is like I've, I'm, I'm eight years, I'm, you know, I'm over a decade into my career. But this was like when I was six, seven years into my career, I started learning to say no. In the beginning of my career, dude, I was shooting everything. The thing that bugs me is that people have this concept. They're like that. They're going to like pick up a camera and start shooting exactly what they want to shoot like right away. And I'm like, dude, I, I shot senior portraits. I would go to like skate shops and be like, can I shoot the interior of your store just so I can make like 50 bucks? You know, I, the first photographs I ever shot, I ran out on the Pismo Pier and I would see people surfing my local home yeah. beach, right? See people surfing. I would basically go take pictures of them, run up to them on the beach and be like, Hey, I just shot some photos. Do you want to buy them on a DVD for like 20 bucks? Like that's what I would do. <laughs> and that was, that was me trying to be a photographer. Right. So like, I, I just, with, when people say things like, like, Oh yeah. How did you start? When was your big break? I'm like, how long have you been doing this? You know, like, mm. like, t- like talk to me when you've struggled for a little bit. So you actually appreciate any of this advice. Do you think some people are just not wired the way that, you're wired. You're very entrepreneurial with that, that, that um, kind of mindset. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I think that any, I, no one's I, better or worse than someone else, but like, is it okay to be self-aware enough to say, maybe I should intern or be an editor or assist? Or I think this that or it's that? important for people to try everything. I've done all of that. I've, I've edited, I've assisted, I've interned many times. I've done all the things that I would hope that people starting out would want to do because you the best piece of advice I got was like, don't get good at something you don't want to do. 
how do you know what you don't want to do if you don't try all those things? Yeah. This is the, the kind of the key component to understanding where your, where your skills lie is to really test the waters. And if you don't test the waters, you, you'll never have an idea of like what really brings you joy. And I think that one of the coolest things is like to understand my, my friend Keith Lezinski said this in a, in a Adorama round table thing we did, but he's like, everybody sucks in the beginning. Like you suck and that's okay. Like it's okay to suck. You suck, you suck some more Then you emulate somebody. Then you suck some more. Mm-hmm. Then you find your voice. Mm-hmm. And it, you don't just like pick up a camera and be like, I yeah. found my voice. And I think the thing that kills me the most is people have this concept where it's like, oh, I, I get an Instagram account and then I buy a camera and then I figure out how to use it. It's like, it's no, that's order. not the process. <laughs> like Instagram is not this tool to make you become a successful photographer. It's mm-hmm. just a communication platform. That's mm-hmm. it. It's a phone. It's an iPod. It's an internet communication right. device. It's just, it's just, just I always, it's all, all social media is, is glorified texting. Yeah. And if you don't like, <laughs> and if you don't like people, you'll never find success on that platform. If you enjoy people, then you'll probably find success because you'll want to communicate. And it's communication that really makes, you know, those accounts thrive. I feel like, yeah. You know, do you like Instagram? Yeah. Kind of sometimes. What do you mean? How well, long? You've been on it for a while, haven't you? Um, I got on it in like 2013. Um, so whatever, five years now, something like that. Um, How was it? But it started, it started in 2010. Um, no, I mean, I I love it. I love the ability. Like, here's the thing. I I will straightforward, like every person that works for me, almost every person I've met them via social media. Um, a lot of my best friends today, people that I spend massive amounts of time with are I've met through social media. Um, I've, I've been able to use it as a lucrative tool for my business for sure. But it's probably the last thing on, on, I have these, when I teach, I I talk about these pillars of income, Mm -hmm. commercial photography, image licensing, editorial, the first three, these are active income. You have to seek out there's passive income where it's the stuff that you can control more. So merchandise, books, films, prints, things like that, speaking, teaching, educating. And the very last thing for me is social media influencer work, meaning that that's where I get paid to promote something. So could it be the other way around? Yeah. I'd be selling you fit tea and protein powder and all kinds of crap that I don't want to sell. Right. Cause I don't care. That's not what I use it for. I use it as a tool to inspire as a storytelling tool. I think that it, all the rest of my business has benefited from that yeah. because I use it for that. But again, I think it's just one of these things where I do enjoy it when it, when I'm, when I'm using it in a way that really feels like I'm connected with people. Mm-hmm. And I like you. You'll, I mean, people notice usually too. Like I have, an, I answer probably ninety percent of my DMs. I I respond to a lot of people. I like the connectivity that it brings. Mm-hmm. What do you not like about it? I just guess sometimes I don't like the comparison. Um, people talking about the algorithm. If I, I hate hearing about the algorithm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, who cares? Like when I hear that's like such a cry for help. The moment I hear like the algorithm, it's like, dude, who cares? Like, mm-hmm. you know, find something else. Find use another app. Um, just when I hear people complaining about feature sets and things like this, I'm like, it's like you didn't design it. Like you're using somebody else's free platform that's probably benefited you in some way. Like stop complaining, you know, mm-hmm. like they can do whatever they want. Who cares if it goes away tomorrow, what'll happen? And that's because you have the mindset of your commercial work. And well, it's just like I've, I've set my business up to not be the other way around where social exactly. media is the main. I, it's a joy. I get on there and it's fun. It's a joy. Yeah. But it can also be a time suck. And this is the thing I think is funny is that people are like oftentimes talking about social media and they're like, they're saying how it can be this, this, you know, 
painful or, you know, arduous thing. I'm going on there. I'm trying to share. I'm like, no, you know what you're doing is you, you go on there. You maybe spend five minutes trying to find something to share. You're forcing yourself to say something. You, you post that and then you spend 20 to 30. 30 to four hours a day scrolling random stuff and looking at like kook of the day and stuff like, and that's not, that's not using it for productivity. Like I try to go on there and respond to people, comment back people, look at their page. Like I I try to reciprocate. I try to share like ideas and thoughts and, and create friendships. And that's, Mm -hmm. and I try to avoid the aimless, endless scrolling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we scroll 300 feet of social media a day. Oh, that's a cool stat. That's a terrible thing. That's Can, awful. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, something to think about. Yeah. How tall are you? I'm uh, five eight, so not that tall. <laughs> so five so eight it's a lot of me. Three hundred. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know what that is. I don't know. <laughs> the point eight throws it off. Under the Arctic sky. Yeah. Really amazing documentary. Oh, thanks, man. I, appreciate I actually that. watched it yesterday. Nice. Um, of course, the last ten minutes are my favorite moments of the. I hope film. so. Um, no spoiler alert, but. The shot that you got is unbelievable, and of course, I'm sure is one of your favorite uh, moments. Yeah, it's funny. It's I definitely like the photograph at the you know the experience. Mm. It was amazing, but the, the I think the film component of it, like we came back from that trip and we weren't planning on making a film at all. Just so you know, and uh, we so actually just a guy filming stuff. Just hanging well, out no, what? it was like we did two trips um, to kind of break down the thing. We went there to to write to do a story for surfer magazine i was going to go and do a story on this boat captain captain siggy who was going to take us to this remote wave that i had been researching Mm -hmm. we went out there we got turned around the storm happened we ended up somewhere else went through the storm shot surfing under the northern lights totally happened up to chance right all this Mm -hmm. was just like kind of a be there sort of scenario um but I guess what I'm saying is like when we got back, so from not the, what you said earlier when you go with a plan. Well, it was one of these things where like we, the, 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 the plan changed. Yeah. All, it wasn't like we ended up there and we got it. It was like all of a sudden we saw what was possible and mm. we were like, okay, let's redirect oh, yes. and do the best with our, our, the best we can to make this come to life. And that's what exactly what happened. But again, a part of it was like letting, was letting, learning to let go of expectations because here's the thing this is the thing that kills me is like, I think that what social media has done in many ways is it's, it's killed the opportunity for us to have, um, for us to have the ability to just experience things in a more natural way. We go to places with expectations. Mm. You go, you travel somewhere and you're like, I'm going to see this and see this and see that. And if I don't see that, then it might not be successful. And the reality is, you know, you used to, when you, when you remove the expectations of it out of it, you, you leave yourself open to, experiences that wouldn't otherwise happen. And this mm-hmm. is what this film is all about. It's all about that. And it was all about us learning to like all of a sudden let go and kind of, you know, nature was really the one in charge. And, but anyway, yeah. we came back from that trip and we had about 15 minutes of good footage and we were like, you know what? The, the photos are great. The article is going to be good, but to really tell this story, this is what we needed. And this is where it really boils down to. I like people always tell me it was a great film. You did a great job directing. I'm like, I'm not a director at all. I just, I'm a storyteller and this is, this was the way that I knew to tell the story. And I knew that the photographs were great, but they weren't going to give you the whole picture. So we went back, we filled in all the blanks. We shot drone footage and we shot, um, landscape stuff and interviews just to fill in the story to, to make it 40 minutes. And the only reason it's 40 minutes is because that was Tribeca film festivals, short, short form standard for their film. And so it was going to originally be longer. Is that the maximum length for short form? It was. Yeah. Or it would have to be 60 to 90. So we were stuck in this like limbo. We were like, uh, 60 minutes. That's going to be like 
$50,000 worth of music more so, and all this just stuff that we didn't have budget for. Um, so ultimately, you know, I've always told people again, like I'm not a director. This was just the way in which the story was going to come to life the best. And so I was really grateful for it. And I think that it has been an amazing tool. Those are the tools to me, not social media that I rely on to, mm -hmm. to market myself. What was it like being involved in a film? I mean, coming from more of a photography well, background. I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to direct, DP, produce a number of, of pieces, a lot of, okay. a lot of uh, commercial broadcasts, like for brands, whether it's like a Super Bowl spot for Jeep or whether it's a, nice. a North Face commercial or things like that. So I've, I've been a lot. I didn't know that. No, I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't want you to because there's the thing. I don't promote that stuff because <laughs> okay. I don't want to. Do, I, I don't. I, I don't put it out in the world, nice. right? Um, that's just whatever. Like I've, I've been able to stand in those roles and, and experience that, but to come to work on a long form project, mm -hmm. like those are like two to three minutes long, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, 30 yeah. seconds. It's a lot different. Your you know? budget goes a long way with uh, yeah. 20 seconds. Yeah. But all of a sudden when you're dealing with something where you're like, Oh, okay, this is a, this is going to be a 40 minute film. You're all, you're thinking about character development mm -hmm. and you're thinking about, um, you're thinking about like you let your shots live longer and oh, breathe more. Well, like, and sometimes you just don't say anything at all because the whole yeah. point is you want to show, not tell. Mm. And to be honest, like I'm the first person to say I'm, I was a total rookie. Like that film was like the most expensive college education I never wanted ever, mm. but I learned so much and it was so valuable and I would, I would, wouldn't change anything, but I definitely felt like there was some there was some wisdom that I was able to really glean from that, you know, what's some, just, what's some things you learned? Well, just like how I would have, it, and kind of hard to explain, but like how we would have toured it, how I would have funded it differently, how I would have gone about distributing it. Um, you know, we, we, you just we, went to the festivals. You didn't go to Vimeo or anything. Like um, that? no, we, we, we went to, we, we went to Tribeca film festival. We premiered a Tribeca film festival and then we sold it, um, via the orchard. And then we sold it to iTunes, Netflix, you know, or, yeah. uh, you know, we did release on iTunes, sold it to Netflix. We had just, different people this was all new yeah again and what i always tell people is i'm like to be a filmmaker to be a director mm -hmm. you have to make money from films yeah like that's my that's just my like that's a documentary director awesome right so he knows what's up like yeah i wouldn't really call myself a photographer until i'm making money with photographs mm -hmm. like i like to shoot great you're you, you're a picture taker mm -hmm. but in terms of like i'm a i'm a working photographer i would i would have to say that at that point you'd probably want to be like whatever you're eating or consuming should be the money should be coming from photography you're making profit. <laughs> yeah. Like, so like for me, I'm like, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm just a storyteller. And that was, um, a storytelling exercise and it cool. was an amazing one. And I learned a lot that hopefully if I do this again, I would apply for mm -hmm. sure. But right now it was just like an amazing exercise. And that's just the way I look at it. Like cool. I don't, I don't really want to look at it in any other way because I think it hurts inside to be like, Oh, like, you know, this was expensive and challenging, but I, but so fulfilling, like the most fulfilling thing I've ever worked That's on. It's a cool thing, you know, for your kids to watch, you know, and, and kind of yeah. get a real bird's eye look on what you, yeah. what dad does. You know? <clears throat> totally. Cool. I think about that sometimes, like they'll probably think I'm a loser, but maybe this will make me a little cooler <laughs> at some point. Yeah, absolutely. So you're into rock climbing. It's something that I immediately noticed in the office here. You've got a yeah, rock wall a climbing there. wall. Um, I have literally zero experience with rock climbing, uh, other than I think I went to like one of those little gyms that, you yeah, know, yeah. Are, it was a date night with those my are, wife. Oh, nice. That's sweet. It was fun. Um, tell me about your passion for rock climbing and where um, that started. And do you actually go out and do that? Yeah. yeah I've, I've climbed in Yosemite quite a bit, Joshua tree, Patagonia, and <clears throat> sort of different places all over. It's, I started climbing when I was in my early twenties, um, and it was something that at the time was just a, an escape from 
the beach. Cause think about it. You're, you're a surf photographer. That's kind of what I grew up doing mm. every day. You go to the beach and you shoot during the best days. So when I got to surf, it was like the worst days, right? So, <laughs> but with climbing, it's like every day is kind of the best day. Like the rock doesn't change really. So you're just waiting for good conditions. And, and I just, I, I kind of fell out of love with team sports early on. I really loved the, the individual challenge of certain things, which maybe you relate yeah. to, but like That's the cool. idea of like, I'm going out there and it's the, I'm the only person that I'm up against is myself. Right. Or this, you know, object. And I just, I love the movement. I love the the way that it kind of shapes your mind, sharpens your mind a lot because mm. there is risk in some ways, yeah. especially when you're like trad climbing on a big wall or something. Um, so I love climbing. It's a big part of my life. I didn't really shoot a lot of it. It took me a while to start shooting it because I kind of like to be proficient at things or like have a well averse knowledge of things before I start shooting it. You know, mm -hmm. um, like with surfing, I grew up surfing and I grew up in the water and I, I had a real understanding of it and I felt proficient like i was a specialist right yeah. so with climbing a lot of it's really just been for me i love it um it's kind of what i do to keep my mind sane that and yoga and cycling and a few other things so nice yeah um you should get on the wall while you're here yeah i'll, yeah. I'll give it a try yeah. it kind of goes like it's scary it goes Definitely. off to an angle where it looks like i'll just fall that that does happen sometimes um so what is your so when i travel i tend to uh, sometimes overpack. Uh, I've traveled a lot over the years, been to Kenya twice and nice. Haiti and DR and Guatemala and, um, did a lot of mission work. Cool. Uh, That's I'm rad. A, I'm a believer and in, involved in that stuff. So, um, when you pack, like what are some of the essential things that you're trying to accomplish? Do you pack light? Do you bring more than you I try to sometimes? pack as minimal as possible because of the fact that I've realized just how much time is spent in transit packing and repacking, gathering the crap from your hotel room, throwing it. I want to be the person who's like ready to go. Okay, cool. I'll see you in seven minutes. Boom. Ready to go. Like, and the reality is I, any, like, here's the thing. You, you pack all this stuff, you get to location, you wear the same thing every single day. You mm -hmm. get back and you're like, why did I pack all this? You know, it's like, you, yeah. you figure you'd learn. I still do that. Trust me. I'm still, yeah. I still suck at this. My essentials are pretty simple. It's like, you know, neck pillow, uh, like some butt wipes, you know, like noise canceling headphones, like yeah. just like stupid stuff. But then I'm usually trying to think of like what one pair of shoes can I wear in like five scenarios? Mm -hmm. What one pair of pants can I wear in like 10 scenarios? What, you know, what shirt jacket like, I'm trying to look for stuff that works for everything. And I really try to take this concept that the more, you know, the mm -hmm. less you need, which is, I think where the research of a place really comes in line for me with like what I'm going to be doing there activity wise. Like nice. I want to spend a lot of time on Google earth, on Flickr, on, on just, chat rooms and whatnot talking to people about these places i'm going to chat rooms is pretty outdated i don't think anybody talks in chat rooms anymore unless they're looking at weird stuff but, yeah. um but that's happened you know i've been like you know i'm going to vladivostok russia like what's it like there you know you i don't know anybody in my small town who's been to yeah. vladivostok russia so yeah. yeah you end up kind of chatting with people you know so that's cool and just trying to do the research i guess yeah is that a part of your process often? Totally. Just always spend a day or two just doing. Oh well, yeah. Usually it's like weeks, you know, <laughs> and it's like the more you, I'm like, I'm going to Japan, uh, for my third, fourth trip. Uh, I'm going to go to Japan at the end of this month in Japan. We're going to be going to every part of the Island, every corner. Cause we're surfing in every body of water. So That's the cool. sea of Japan, the sea of Ojos, the South China sea and the Pacific, right? So we're going Hokkaido, very Southern Island, very Eastern Island, very Western. Like it's crazy. It's a, it's a lot to chew. It's a lot of driving. It's a lot of travel, but 
this is like one of those trips where I'm going to be in the snow and in the tropics and then, you know, and, and I need to yeah. kind of, so it's a great exercise. And most of my trips tend to, yeah, most of my trips tend to do stuff like that too. Do you often find yourself, uh, switching to video mode to capture moments? Never. Or do you I always... never shoot video ever. Okay. I'm not a videographer. I just don't see things in that way. Like, you know, a good DP will be like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to shoot a 50 and I'm going to pan across this scene to yeah. show it all. And I'm like, great, cool. I'll slap on a 24 and I'll get it all in one go. <laughs> you know, I'm a photographer. That's what I do. And I, I, yeah. I actually, again, like don't get good at things you don't want to do. And I, I've have shot video. I see the moment that I want to capture. I rely upon a good team to do that for me. I like directing. I like working on the overall vision, the, the mm-hmm. big picture emotion and that I want to convey. And, and I just like working with talented people. And I think collaborating has been one of the greatest assets, whether it's a good writer for articles, whether it's a good video team, whether it's, you know, who else, whoever, like a designer, that to me has been a really big, big tool. Well, with, uh, I actually pulled a question from Twitter. That's actually very similar to that. Um, this is Twitter, from, meaning, did you guys do I a I posted poll? a tweet. I just was like, hey, nice. I'm, I'm hanging out with Chris. Uh, can Sick. you give me That's some rad. questions? Uh, this guy's name is uh, Caleb Wojcik. He's a uh, up, filmmaker. Um, over the years of building your brand and wanting to focus more and more on the creative side of photography and making images, how'd you find the right person or people to help you run your business side of things? Great question. Help with planning <laughs> trips, editing your photos, etc. So well, you just mentioned that. Yeah. Tell me about the process of That's building great, your team. It's a great question, actually, and one that kind of gets often overlooked. I'll just quick backstory. Like I didn't, I wasn't like, cool, I'm expanding my business. Boom. I'm going to hire seven employees. You know, nowadays we have, you know, seven employees. There was a time when I had 11 cause I had a separate gallery. So I had to have staff and a, and a manager mm-hmm. but right now. You know, I've got my office manager, in-house photo editor, in-house first assistant, second assistant, um, an intern, uh, bookkeeper and, um, my agent, John and my licensing agent. So some of those are offsite. Some of those are on in-house, but just to kind of give you a backstory of where I am now, this is not like a Chris, Chris brags about his like office scenario, sure. but, but it started with me in my house in a guest bedroom or me in my room on my laptop or me in my, the back of my Toyota truck, sending mm. out photos on, you know, stealing Wi-Fi from Starbucks. Right. So <laughs> keep in mind, like I, I eventually had a room in my house, an extra room in my house. And I, I had somebody ask me if they could intern and I was early in my career and I was like, well, intern, what, what could I possibly teach somebody? You know, I have no idea. And so eventually I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I, I offered, I, I let them come and intern and. I tried to create a similar internship scenario as I had at Transworld and other things. And um, ultimately what I realized was like all of a sudden this person knew my system. They knew how to access images and they knew how to, to prep files and do this stuff. Because the thing is, is that as soon as you take off on the road, and this is what people ask, like, when do you know you need an assistant? I'm like, when you're on the road enough to where you can't fulfill all of your expectations. Like you can't send an image to this person and send an image to this person. And people don't realize people always, the one piece of criticism I get is people are like, Oh, you don't edit all your own photos. I'm like, hell no. I'm on the road so much. Do you know how long it takes to edit a 20,000 photo job or 30 or 40,000 like yeah. weeks to do it right? Yeah. I'm not going to sit in the office when I'm, jobs are passing by. And you know what? If you're relying so much upon your very specific editing style mm. that nobody else could do it, there's a problem. Like, right. That's not a sustainable workflow. So 
yeah, I set the tone. I set the look. I set it. I give it off to somebody else who deals with it. I look at the final selects. I make tweaks and then we send it to the client. And so ultimately when I started to get to the point where I was gone so much that I needed somebody in the office to fulfill these requests, that's when I realized I needed an assistant. So I hired that intern on as an assistant. And then I had an assistant and an intern Then I hired them both on. Then I had two assistants, you know, people that would do all jobs. And then it was like, oh, well, I don't want to do the bookkeeping. So I hired a bookkeeper and then I, and, and you just slowly add on. And what ends up happening is you have so many people, so many people helping you out that you need to hire someone to manage those people. And that's where you kind of get an office manager who really is you when you're gone, your eyes and your ears, they answer your email, this and that. I deal with everything because my job is to do what is to be a hundred percent present and focused when I'm on the road, the people that I'm teaching in a workshop in the UK or speaking at an event or shooting or directing a piece for Prana or a job. They don't want me to be like, Oh, Chris is busy because he's answering random email requests. Like, no, like that shouldn't be your job. Your job should be to be creative. Your job should be to focus on the task at hand and give yourself 110% to the client or the job or whatever is being asked of you. And I feel like for me, if I can learn to delegate and separate the office day-to-day things Mm -hmm. and sort of my process, it allows me to be more creative and more, more give more of myself to those jobs. And sometimes people can be better, better than you at those things. Oftentimes they are. You just said it. I mean, this is it. <laughs> the people here are better than me at those jobs. Do you think that you're going to be the best photo editor in the world? No, I'm not the best photo editor in the world. I am. I have a specific style and I want to have that style fully realized by my team, mm-hmm. but they can still do a better job at getting from point A to point B for me, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing it through. And, that, and that's just what it is. Like, I'm not the best bookkeeper, am I? Yeah. No, like I don't want to be. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be an editor, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I know for me, Connor over there is my editor. Nice. And, what uh, up, Connor? Man. Yeah. Once you get an editor, like, just frees you up. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, it allows you to do what you do best, which mm-hmm. is, I don't know. I don't know. I'm yeah. sitting here talking to you. I That's don't it. know what I do best either. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I don't actually know what I do. I do best. Um, Big Red Photos from Instagram asks, best scouting location techniques? Oh, great question. Um you know, the beauty is the internet, right? It's, that's the coolest thing we have. But I would, I would say that Google earth is, is excellent. Mm-hmm. Like I've used that tool forever. Have you seen the movie lion? Yeah. It's amazing. Right. <laughs> the guy like found his home on yeah, Google it's earth. Like, oh my gosh. I want to like find some money. I like dropped in a street somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, so yeah, so yeah Google, Google earth. earth is amazing. And especially for me looking for waves, I was often using it as a search tool for waves. I would learn from having gone to places and then looking at the Google Earth when I come back, I was able to kind of cross-reference, okay, this is what it looked like being there. This is what it looked like on Google Earth. This means there could be a wave there. Or this means, no, this isn't, you know. So that Flickr was great. Like in like really diving into Flickr. Um, the, the cool part about Google Earth is all the photos that are attached to Google Earth from those third-party websites, you know, where people yeah. tag it, geolog. Nowadays, you have Instagram, you have hashtags. Um, you can look through. I even have just, you know, contact people that have been there. You'd be often surprised how like friendly people are like, oh, I saw you went there on a family vacation, like email them like, I'd love to know about the weather and about this. And is there any high advantage points? Is there any way to get down to the bottom of this canyon? You know, like, I think that's a really great resource too. Um, a sun tracker app, or I think uh photo pills is a good one where you can sort of see how does the sun rise? Where does the sun set? You can geographically like point your location and really for any day of the year and mm. find that out. That's a really good tool now, too. What did so, they do 30 years ago? I, I, dude, it's honestly, <laughs> all the things you're saying are internet based. It's amazing. Well, it's so true. But the reality of this amazing? is this, like my mentor, Michael Fatali, he's a large format landscape photographer. Mm-hmm. One of the 
most prolific in the world. His images sell for like ten to twenty to thirty to eighty thousand dollars. He was the first guy. Eight by ten transparencies, right? Film, like Unreal. wooden camera, big tripod. Yeah. He, he was the first guy to photograph, like. Places like Horseshoe Bend and Antelope Canyon wow. and this and that before they were places. Mm-hmm. And so much of his experience was just like, again, like going, talking word to mouth, this and that, like being, being able to spend time in these places. For me, a big part of my career at like shooting surfers, it wasn't like I went on a blog and was like, where's the best surfers in central California? I would just show up at the beach. And so what I'm saying is that yeah. there is, and, and you have to keep in mind, he's Boots from the, the he's from the Southwest. So it's different when you're going somewhere that you've never been like overseas or whatever. But when I was like scouting, like trying to find locations to shoot where I live, that was the byproduct of just growing up here yeah. and being shown someplace in Boy Scouts. You're being shown someplace by an older friend or a brother, yeah. or this and that, or being taken somewhere, you know, by this and that. And then even again, like finding athletes to shoot, I would just show up at the beach on the best days. You know when the best days are because I would call the weather report and listen to the surf forecast. And then I would get, you know, like we're byproducts of our environment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I think people sometimes forget that. Finding bit. locals in those areas in other countries is a great way to hack and, into that. And the best work I've ever done, like Under Arctic Sky, for example, that was all because of the locals. Those relationships that I formed. Yeah. And this is what I try to tell people. I'm like, Under Arctic Sky, perfect example. I've been to Iceland 33 times. I'm not saying that as like a pat me on the back. I'm saying that that trip that film is the byproduct of all of that time mm. investment of time mm-hmm. investment into people's lives and locals. And I found that boat captain because I was talking to somebody at, you know, everybody else went out drinking and I stayed around the Harbor and was talking to boat captains about somebody who could take me out there. That's, that's, that's boots on the ground. Yeah. This is research. No Google earth, nothing like you need to make Respect, a, real, yeah. Cause you could find well, a place, but the hard part is getting there. It's always access, right? Yeah. Like the most special places are not hard to find. They're hard to access. And I think that's where they were just that like concept of like, you know, learning to communicate and talk and, you know, shoot the crap people. That's really good. So yeah. If you could collaborate or work with anybody dead or alive, who would it be? Are there anybody, <laughs> any creatives that inspire you that aren't here anymore that, or people that are alive that you I mean, haven't met yet. I'd definitely be honored to to spend a little time around Ansel. I've spent enough time around his archive and his work and his family and this and that to feel in some way like I I know his him kind of a little bit, you know. And it, but it would be it would have been incredible to meet him and and even just like hear him speak or something like that would have been really amazing. Um, you know. A lot of the people that really inspire me are, are still alive, and I feel like I'm in contact with them in some capacity. And I guess, I guess your mentor sounds amazing. Yeah, Michael's really amazing, dude. Um, one thing I would just say is that I, I guess, if anything, Edward Curtis would be somebody. He shot um, a lot of the First Nations people for the American government back um, way early on, all large format. He went to all these tribes and basically shot portraits and this and that, mm. and. Um, he has a really amazing book called long night of the shadow hunter. And uh, some of my favorite work is his, it would have been amazing to see his process because he was like really venturing into the unknown, like very much at risk, like going to these places being like, I want to document you because, because of, of course, inevitably what I think everybody saw coming, which was that there was going to be, um, manifest destiny was going to take over. And this is a really terrible thing that was, we were going to lose. And so I was, um, I've always been really, uh, taken by his work and, but I think that for the most part, most people I'm really inspired by are alive. It would have been great to see some musicians just because that could have been really inspiring to like, you know, I don't know, see, see the Beatles all, you know, play together or something like that. Like, I feel like that would have been really rad, but yeah, I don't know. Like I'm, 
I'm kind of open to anything or anybody, you know, I, nowadays I, I still love collaborating a lot. It's really That's fun awesome. for me. Yeah. How does somebody getting started 20 year old, 16 year old, 30 year old, whatever it is, 50 year old, doesn't matter. I think as long as you're sucking wind, you can be a photographer. Um, how does one begin this journey to be a professional and to just create what, what you love? What are some steps that people can take? That's a great question. And I would say that I have a really straightforward answer for that. And the reality is you need to be a specialist. I think too often we are, we lose sight of the fact that, um, we're hired because of our strengths. We're not hired because you can do everything. Okay. No, Matt, no editor was like, let's go with him. He can do it all. Okay. They like, no, I want to hire Paul Nicklin because he's the best at shooting under Antarctic ice. Can he shoot Afghan portraiture? Yeah. Is he hired for that? No. Why? Because he's the best at doing this. When I worked for the magazine, I got to see what other staff photographers were doing and I wanted to do what I wanted to do because I also, because I was the best at it because, but what I was the best at was what I was inspired by and what I found joy in. I think that sometimes what happens is people do have like a, a, a path that they really enjoy and something they love. Um, but in order to get there, in order to get that specialty, you have to do a lot of other things. That's fine. I'm not talking about necessarily like, you know, making bread, right? I'm not talking yeah, about sure. like, you know, getting paid. I'm talking about like when you put your body of work in front of somebody, an editor, whatever, don't convince yourself and other people that you can do everything well. Understand that they're going to hire you, the magazine or client, because you offer a skill set that nobody else does. And the reality is that if you're ever hired just because you have a camera and you can do it, oh man, that's like maybe maybe one of the most frustrating things because that means I don't care that you're creative. That means I aren't buying into your creative process. They're just buying into the fact that you know how to operate in a camera. Mm-hmm. And the next person who's in line could probably fill that position. I want to be sought after because I bring something special to the table that I think, or I hope that nobody else does. I think the more we do that, you realize that you will find success commercially, um, editorially and in your career because you'll be sought out. And that that. might be something when you're starting out that you have to do for free. Oh, hundred percent. And also too, biggest thing ever is like, you have to invest in yourself. Do you Mm -hmm. think I, do you think I was ever hired to shoot automobiles because I, I put a good intention out into the world? No, I spent money my own money, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of dollars to go shoot vehicles, photograph them in interesting locations. And I built a portfolio I was proud of. Do you think that I became a, a sought after aerial photographer because I just put good intentions out in the world? It's like, I'd love to shoot planes. And then somebody's like, Hey Chris, we had an idea. We thought you might be good for this. No, <laughs> I built a portfolio based upon the things that I wanted to do and the things I want to get better at. Now you can have specialties. I am a specialist in different things. I think they all represent a similar style, but I had to prove that I could do those things. So I thought about this long and hard. I was like, I would love to shoot automobiles. I would love to shoot, you know, like four by fours and trucks and this and that. And, and I'd love to shoot aerial photography. And I spent the time to build those portfolios. And that was an investment of money back into myself. And that's a really important thing. Like you want to do these things. You might have to take a step back. Mm. And this is the biggest challenge. I think people are like, I have a really successful career as a wedding photographer, but I want to shoot motocross. Well, <laughs> not sure what to tell you. They're like, how can I do the same without affecting one or the other? I'm like, uh, you can't, you're gonna have to take a hit somewhere. Mm. But if that's going to make you more happy in the long run, then do it. Going back to square one, taking two steps back isn't, is I think a lot of times just as successful as taking one step forward. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris Brigard for being here on the golden hour podcast. Dude, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Great way to end it. Hope you enjoyed yeah. the podcast. Was I'm fun? stoked. Yeah. yeah. It's good times. Dude. Heck yeah. I like the questions. Okay, they were good. They actually 
you know, I, I'm a, I, I'm I'm in the trenches with you. So I've done a lot of podcasts, and it's all, I, I tend to get used to like the same questions. Over I tried and over, to so shy away from. So them. it's nice to hear some like different things. I included some of them. That's yeah. fine. I think some of those are important. If you got to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for bearing with me again. I'm so sorry about the situation here with Valentina. We will be rescheduling that. Thank you for listening to this episode. Maybe you're a newer person. Let me know on Twitter or Instagram that you listened to this for the first time. I'm actually really curious to hear how many of you are hearing this for the very first time. Again, I recorded this about two years ago. And Chris's interview, again, is one of my favorite shows that we've done over the last two years that we've done this podcast. So if this is the first time, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram and let me know that you enjoyed this show, even though it's an oldie but a goodie. I hope you guys realize that I'm doing this because I feel like the quality of the audio of the show is of utmost importance. We're not doing any video aspect of this anymore, so it's an audio first platform. So there's no way I'm going to allow our podcast to sound like garbage. So that is why I decided to can the Valentina V interview and we will be re-recording that in the future. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. And we'll see you next week with good audio.